Section 11 of A Theological-Political Treatise by Baruch Benedict de Spinoza Translated by Robert Harvey Monroe Elvis This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. Chapter 10 An Examination of the Remaining Books of the Old Testament According to the Preceding Method I now pass on to the remaining books of the Old Testament. Concerning the two books of Chronicles, I have nothing particular or important to remark, except that they were certainly written after the time of Ezra, and possibly after the restoration of the temple by Judas Maccabeus. For in chapter 9 of the first book we find a reckoning of the families who were the first to live in Jerusalem, and in verse 17 the names of the porters of which two recur in Nehemiah. This shows that the books were certainly compiled after the rebuilding of the city. As to their actual writer, their authority, utility, and doctrine, I come to no conclusion. I have always been astonished that they have been included in the Bible by men who shut out from the canon the books of wisdom, Tobit, and others style apocryphal. I do not aim at disparaging their authority, but as they are universally received, I will leave them as they are. The Psalms were collected and divided into five books in the time of the Second Temple, for Psalm 88 was published according to Philo Judaeus, while King Jehoiakim was still a prisoner in Babylon, and Psalm 89 when the same king obtained his liberty. I do not think Philo would have made the statement unless either it had been the received opinion in his time, or else had been told him by trustworthy persons. The Proverbs of Solomon were, I believe, collected at the same time, or at least in the time of King Josiah. For in chapter 25, verse 1, it is written, These are also Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out. I cannot here pass over in silence the audacity of the rabbis, who wished to exclude from the sacred canon both the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and to put them both in the Apocrypha. In fact, they would certainly have done so if they had not lighted on certain passages in which the law of Moses is extolled. It is indeed grievous to think that the settling of the sacred canon lay in the hands of such men. However, I congratulate them, in this instance, on their suffering us to see these books in question, though I cannot refrain from doubting whether they have transmitted them in absolute good faith. But I will not now linger on this point. I pass on then to the prophetic books. An examination of these assures me that the prophecies therein contained have been compiled from other books and are not always set down in the exact order in which they were spoken or written by the prophets, but are only such as were collected here and there, so that they are but fragmentary. Isaiah began to prophesy in the reign of Uzziah, as the writer himself testifies in the first verse. He not only prophesied at that time, but furthermore wrote the history of that king. See Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 22, in a volume now lost. That which we possess we have shown to have been taken from the chronicles of the kings of Judah and Israel. I may add that the rabbis assert that this prophet prophesied in the reign of Manasseh, by whom he was eventually put to death. And although this seems to be a myth, it yet shows that they did not think that all Isaiah's prophecies are extant. The prophecies of Jeremiah, which are related historically, are also taken from various chronicles. For not only are they heaped together confusedly, without any account being taken of dates, but also the same story is told in them differently in different passages. 
For instance, in chapter 21, we are told that the cause of Jeremiah's arrest was that he had prophesied the destruction of the city to Zedekiah, who consulted him. This narrative suddenly passes, in chapter 22, to the prophet's remonstrances to Jehoiakim, Zedekiah's predecessor, and the prediction he made of that king's captivity. Then in chapter 25 come the revelations granted to the prophet previously, that is, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, and further on still, the revelations received in the first year of the same reign. The continuator of Jeremiah goes on heaping prophecy upon prophecy without any regard to dates, until at last, in chapter 38, as if the intervening chapters had been a parenthesis, he takes up the thread dropped in chapter 21. In fact, the conjunction with which chapter 38 begins refers to the 8th, ninth, and 10th verses of chapter 21. Jeremiah's last arrest is then very differently described, and a totally separate cause is given for his daily retention in the court of the prison. We may thus clearly see that these portions of the book have been compiled from various sources and are only from this point of view comprehensible. The prophecies contained in the remaining chapters, where Jeremiah speaks in the first person, seem to be taken from a book written by Baruch at Jeremiah's dictation. These, however, only comprise, as appear from chapter 36, verse 2, the prophecies revealed to the prophet from the time of Josiah to the fourth year of Jehoiakim, at which period the book begins. The contents of chapter 45, verse 2, on to chapter 51, verse 59, seem taken from the same volume. That the book of Ezekiel is only a fragment is clearly indicated by the first verse. For anyone may see that the conjunction with which it begins refers to something already said and connects what follows therewith. However, not only this conjunction, but the whole text of the discourse implies other writings. The fact of the present work, beginning in the thirtieth year, shows that the prophet is continuing, not commencing a discourse. And this is confirmed by the writer, who parenthetically states in verse 3, The word of the Lord came often unto Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans. As if to say that the prophecies which he is about to relate are the sequel to revelations formerly received by Ezekiel from God. Furthermore, Josephus, Antiquities, chapter 10, verse 9, says that Ezekiel prophesied that Zedekiah should not see Babylon, whereas the book we now have not only contains no such statement, but contrarywise asserts in chapter 17 that he should be taken to Babylon as a captive. Of Hosea, I cannot positively state that he wrote more than is now extant in the book bearing his name, but I am astonished at the smallness of the quantity we possess for the sacred writer asserts that the prophet prophesied for more than eighty years. We may assert, speaking generally, that the compiler of the prophetic books neither collected all the prophets nor all the writings of those we have. For of the prophets who are said to have prophesied in the reign of Manasseh, and of whom general mention is made in Second Chronicles chapter 33, verses 10 and 18, we have evidently no prophecies extant, neither have we all the prophecies of the twelve who give their names to books. Of Jonah, we have only the prophecy concerning the Ninevites, though he also prophesied to the children of Israel, as we learn in Second Kings, chapter fourteen, verse twenty-five. The book and the personality of Job have caused much controversy. Some think that the book is the work of Moses, and the whole narrative merely allegorical. Such is the opinion of the rabbins recorded in the Talmud, 
and they are supported by Maimonides in his More Nebuchim. Others believe it to be a true history, and some suppose that Job lived in the time of Jacob and was married to his daughter Dinah. Aben Ezra, however, as I have already stated, affirms in his commentaries that the work is a translation into Hebrew from some other language. I could wish that he could advance more cogent arguments than he does, for we might then conclude that the Gentiles also had sacred books. I myself leave the matter undecided, but I conjecture Job to have been a Gentile and a man of very stable character, who at first prospered, then was assailed with terrible calamities, and finally was restored to great happiness. He is thus named, among others, by Ezekiel, chapter 14, verse 12. I take it that the constancy of his mind amid the vicissitudes of his fortune occasioned many men to dispute about God's providence, or at least caused the writer of the book in question to compose his dialogues. For the contents, and also the style, seem to emanate far less from a man wretchedly ill and lying among ashes than from one reflecting at ease in his study. I should also be inclined to agree with Aben Ezra that the book is a translation, for its poetry seems akin to that of the Gentiles. Thus the father of gods summons a council, and Momus, here called Satan, criticizes the divine decrees with the utmost freedom. But these are mere conjectures without any solid foundation. I pass on to the book of Daniel, which from chapter 8 onwards undoubtedly contains the writing of Daniel himself. Whence the first seven chapters are derived, I cannot say. We may, however, conjecture that, as they were first written in Chaldean, they are taken from the Chaldean Chronicles. If this could be proved, it would form a very striking proof of the fact that the sacredness of Scripture depends on our understanding of the doctrines therein signified, and not on the words, the language, and the phrases in which these doctrines are conveyed to us. And it would further show us that books which teach and speak of whatever is highest and best are equally sacred, whatever be the tongue in which they are written, or the nation to which they belong. We can, however, in this case only remark that the chapters in question were written in Chaldee, and yet are as sacred as the rest of the Bible. The first book of Ezra is so intimately connected with the book of Daniel, that both are plainly recognizable as the work of the same author, writing of Jewish history from the time of the first captivity onwards. I have no hesitation in joining to this the book of Esther, for the conjunction with which it begins can refer to nothing else. It cannot be the same work as that written by Mordecai, for in chapter 9, verses 20 to 22, another person relates that Mordecai wrote letters and tells us their contents. Further, that Queen Esther confirmed the days of Purim in their times appointed, and that the decree was written in the book, that is, by a Hebraism, in a book known to all then living which, as Aben Ezra and the rest confess, has now perished. Lastly, for the rest of the Acts of Mordecai, the historian refers us to the chronicles of the kings of Persia. Thus there is no doubt that this book was written by the same person as he who recounted the history of Daniel and Ezra, and who wrote Nehemiah's, sometimes called the second book of Ezra. We may then affirm that all these books are from one hand, but we have no clue whatever to the personality of the author. However, in order to determine whence he, whoever he was, had gained a knowledge of the histories which he had, perchance, in great measure himself written, we may remark that the governors or chiefs of the Jews, after the restoration of the temple, kept scribes or historiographers who wrote annals or chronicles of them. The chronicles of the kings are often quoted in the books of kings, but the chronicles of the chiefs and priests are quoted for the first time in Nehemiah, 
chapter 12 verse 23 and again in first maccabees chapter 16 verse 24 this is undoubtedly the book referred to as containing the decree of esther and the acts of mordecai and which as we said with aben ezra is now lost from it were taken the whole contents of these four books for no other authority is quoted by their writer or is known to us that these books were not written by either ezra or nehemiah is plain from nehemiah chapter 12 verse 9 where the descendants of the high priest joshua are traced down to jadua the sixth high priest who went to meet alexander the great when the persian empire was almost subdued josephus antiquities chapter 2 verse 108 or who according to philo judaeus was the sixth and last high priest under the persians in the same chapter of nehemiah verse 22 this point is clearly brought out the levites in the days of eliashib joiada and johanan and jadua were recorded chief of the fathers also the priests to the reign of darius the persian that is to say in the chronicles and i suppose no one thinks that the lives of nehemiah and ezra were so prolonged that they outlived fourteen kings of persia cyrus who was the first who granted the jews permission to rebuild their temple the period between his time and darius fourteenth and last king of persia extends over two hundred and thirty years i have therefore no doubt that these books were written after judas maccabeus had restored the worship in the temple for at that time false books of daniel ezra and esther were published by evil disposed persons who were almost certainly sadducees for the writings were never recognized by the pharisees so far as i am aware and although certain myths in the fourth book of ezra are repeated in the talmud they must not be set down to the pharisees for all but the most ignorant admit that they have been added by some trifler in fact i think someone must have made such additions with a view to casting ridicule on all the traditions of the sect perhaps these four books were written out and published at the time i have mentioned with a view to showing the people that the prophecies of daniels had been fulfilled and thus kindling their piety and awakening a hope of future deliverance in the midst of their misfortunes in spite of their recent origin the books before us contain many errors due i suppose to the haste with which they were written marginal readings such as i have mentioned in the last chapter are found here as elsewhere and in even greater abundance there are moreover certain passages which can only be accounted for by supposing some such cause as hurry however before calling attention to the marginal readings i will remark that if the pharisees are right in supposing them to have been ancient and the work of the original scribes we must perforce admit that these scribes if there were more than one set them down because they found that the text from which they were copying was inaccurate and did yet not venture to alter what was written by their predecessors and superiors i need not again go into the subject at length and will therefore proceed to mention some discrepancies not noticed in the margin one some error has crept into the text of the second chapter of ezra for in verse sixty four we are told that the total of all those mentioned in the rest of the chapter amounts to forty two thousand three hundred and sixty but when we come to add up the several items we get as result only twenty nine thousand eight hundred and eighteen there must therefore be an error either in the total or in the details the total is probably correct for it would most likely be well known to all as a noteworthy thing but with the details the case would be different if then any error had crept into the total it would at once have been remarked and easily corrected this view is confirmed by nehemiah chapter seven 
where this chapter of Ezra is mentioned, and a total is given in plain correspondence thereto. But the details are altogether different. Some are larger and some less than those in Ezra, and altogether they amount to 31,089. We may therefore conclude that both in Ezra and in Nehemiah the details are erroneously given. The commentators who attempt to harmonize these evident contradictions draw on their imagination, each to the best of his ability, and while professing adoration for each letter and word of Scripture, only succeed in holding up the sacred writers to ridicule as though they knew not how to write or relate a plain narrative. Such persons effect nothing but to render the clearness of Scripture obscure. If the Bible could everywhere be interpreted after their fashion, there would be no such thing as a rational statement on which the meaning could be relied on. However, there is no need to dwell on the subject. Only, I am convinced that if any historian were to attempt to imitate the proceedings freely attributed to the writers of the Bible, the commentators would cover him with contempt. If it be blasphemy to assert that there are any errors in Scripture, what name shall we apply to those who foist into it their own fancies, who degrade the sacred writers till they seem to write confused nonsense, and who deny the plainest and most evident meanings? What in the whole Bible can be plainer than the fact that Ezra and his companions, in the second chapter of the book attributed to him, have given in detail the reckoning of all the Hebrews who set out with them for Jerusalem? This is proved by the reckoning being given, not only of those who told their lineage, but also of those who were unable to do so. Is it not equally clear from Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 5 that the writer merely there copies the list given in Ezra? Those, therefore, who explain these passages otherwise deny the plain meaning of Scripture. Nay, they deny Scripture itself. They think it pious to reconcile one passage of Scripture with another, a pretty piety, forsooth, which accommodates the clear passages to the obscure, the correct to the faulty, the sound to the corrupt. Far be it from me to call such commentators blasphemers, if their motives be pure, for to err is human. But I return to my subject. Besides these errors in numerical detail, there are others in the genealogies, in the history, and, I fear also, in the prophecies. The prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 22, concerning Jeconiah, evidently does not agree with his history, as given in First Chronicles, chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, and especially with the last words of the chapter. Nor do I see how the prophecy, Thou shalt die in peace, can be applied to Zedekiah, whose eyes were dug out after his sons had been slain before him. If prophecies are to be interpreted by their issue, we must make a change of name and read Jeconiah for Zedekiah and vice versa. This, however, would be too paradoxical a proceeding. So I prefer to leave the matter unexplained, especially as the error, if error there be, must be set down to the historian and not to any fault in the authorities. Other difficulties I will not touch upon, as I should only weary the reader, and moreover be repeating the remarks of other writers. For Rabbi Salomo, in face of the manifest contradiction in the above-mentioned genealogies, is compelled to break forth into these words. See his commentary on First Chronicles chapter 8. Ezra, whom he supposes to be the author of the book of Chronicles, gives different names and a different genealogy to the sons of Benjamin from those which we find in Genesis, and describes most of the Levites differently from Joshua, because he found original discrepancies. And again, a little later, the genealogy of Gibeon and others is described twice in different ways, 
from different tables of each genealogy, and in writing them down, Ezra adopted the version given in the majority of the texts, and when the authority was equal, he gave both. Thus, granting that these books were compiled from sources originally incorrect and uncertain. In fact, the commentators, in seeking to harmonize difficulties, generally do no more than indicate their causes. For I suppose no sane person supposes that the sacred historians deliberately wrote with the object of appearing to contradict themselves freely. Perhaps I shall be told that I am overthrowing the authority of Scripture, for that, according to me, any one may suspect it of error in any passage. But, on the contrary, I have shown that my object has been to prevent the clear and uncorrupted passages being accommodated to and corrupted by the faulty ones. Neither does the fact that some passages are corrupt warrant us in suspecting all. No book ever was completely free from faults. Yet I would ask, who suspects all books to be everywhere faulty? Surely no one, especially when the phraseology is clear and the intention of the author plain. I have now finished the task I set myself with respect to the books of the Old Testament. We may easily conclude from what has been said that before the time of the Maccabees there was no canon of sacred books, but that those which we now possess were selected from a multitude of others at the period of the restoration of the temple by the Pharisees, who also instituted the set form of prayers, who are alone responsible for their acceptance. Those, therefore, who would demonstrate the authority of Holy Scripture are bound to show the authority of each separate book. It is not enough to prove the divine origin of a single book in order to infer the divine origin of the rest. In that case, we should have to assume that the Council of Pharisees was, in its choice of books, infallible, and this could never be proved. I am led to assert that the Pharisees alone selected the books of the Old Testament and inserted them in the canon, from the fact that in Daniel chapter 2 is proclaimed the doctrine of the resurrection, which the Sadducees denied. And furthermore, the Pharisees plainly assert in the Talmud that they so selected them. For in the treatise of Sabbathus, chapter 2, folio 30, page 2, it is written, Rabbi Yehuda, surnamed Rabbi, reports that the experts wished to conceal the book of Ecclesiastes because they found therein words opposed to the law, that is, to the book of the law of Moses. Why did they not hide it? because it begins in accordance with the law and ends according to the law. And a little further on we read, they sought also to conceal the book of Proverbs. And in the first chapter of the same treatise, folio 13, page 2, verily, name one man for good, even he who is called Nehunja, the son of Hezekiah. For, save for him, the book of Ezekiel would been concealed, because it agreed not with the words of the law. It is thus abundantly clear that men expert in the law summoned a council to decide which books should be received into the canon and which excluded. If any man therefore wishes to be certified as to the authority of all the books, let him call a fresh council and ask every member his reasons. The time has now come for examining in the same manner the books in the New Testament. But as I learn that the task has already been performed by men highly skilled in science and languages, and as I do not myself possess a knowledge of Greek sufficiently exact for the task. Lastly, as we have lost the originals of those books which were written in Hebrew, I prefer to decline the undertaking. However, I will touch on those points which have most bearing on my subject in the following chapter. End of section 11. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.